when I try and clear my inbox at the end of the week, I realized that if I replied, I would literally do nothing else. The sheer volume of, of PR material, and a lot of it really, really badly targeted, is becoming almost impossible to cope with. I'm Eric Schwartzman, author of The Digital Pivot, and this is the Earned Media Podcast. My guest today is Welshman, Rory Kethlin Jones. He is the BBC's technology correspondent. From the dot-com bubble of the late 1990s to the rise of Google and Facebook to the iPad, he's covered all the gadget and business stories. Uh, he's been described as the non-geeks geek and aims to look at the impact of the internet and digital technology on our lives and businesses. Rory, welcome to the Earned Media Podcast. Very excited to be here, Eric. Thanks for having me. Now, Rory, the closest thing we have to the BBC is PBS. But the BBC is a little different, right? The BBC is uh, all-consuming in, in, in the UK. Uh, uh, for, to some people, it's too powerful, but it is, it is part of the fabric of the nation. Uh, it's about to celebrate its centenary in a year or so's time. Uh, it, is, it is radio, it is television, uh, it's got a big online operation, it's got regional stations, um, and... It is, as I say, built into the fabric of British society. It's, it's still controversial. controversial. Uh, politicians from both sides will tell you it's biased. Uh, it has a mission to be impartial. And it's got a unique funding model or you know, uh, one which will seem unusual to Americans. We're supported by a license fee. Anyone who watches TV in the UK has to buy a license uh, which costs at the moment, it's something like $200 a year. Uh, and that supports the BBC. And that gives us an income, an annual income of something like five or $6 billion. Um, and that system has survived longer than lots of people thought it might. It's always under pressure. There's lots of people who think it's a bad idea, but it generally, and uh, until now, it's maintained the support of the public and uh, at least a majority of the politicians. But now you guys don't have ads on BBC in the UK, right? We just have ads on the BBC in America. We do have a commercial operation that runs outside the UK, BBC World TV, which um, has got a pretty decent audience in various places around the world, and that is supported by advertising. Similarly, we have our online operation, bbc.com. Um, you, can, you can read stuff I write, my colleagues write, and you will see ad adverts next to it if you are outside the UK. So yeah, there is, uh, there is some income from that, uh, and obviously there's always pressure to increase that income. And, and who's in charge? Is it a political appointee? How, who, who runs the BBC and who decides who runs the BBC? Well, the, right at the top, there's the director general, who is the kind of chief executive figure, uh, who is, you know, somebody from you mostly has come up from within the BBC, is the executive, uh, often has been a, a senior journalist. Uh, the new director general that has only been in place a few months uh, is unusual. He's been at the BBC a long time, but he came from a marketing background. In fact, I think I think he worked for um, uh, uh, a confectionery uh, company for a while. Uh, but he uh, he he's in he's the executive in charge, and uh, the governance of the BBC keeps changing. But there's also a chairman, and that chairman is appointed by the government, and that chair chairman has just been. Uh, appointed recently, uh, and is a banker, a former banker who does have connections to the ruling Conservative Party. And, and, and is there a term for that appointment? Yeah, there is. The, the, that, that, that person serves, uh, I think, as I say, it keeps changing. I think it's a four or five year term, that chairman, and they are part of a board of kind of non-executive directors. There's also another, there's a media regulator, which recently has become the sort of 
final court of appeal about BBC content decisions called Ofcom. And now that's a that's a regulator with a huge job because it's also in charge. It's a bit like your FCC. Um, it's in charge of uh, Spectrum. Uh, it's in charge of. It's going to be in charge of online content possibly. Uh, if a, a new law goes through, so that's got a very big job. And but part of its job is uh, taking complaints about BBC programs and, and adjudicating on them. And, and for the BBC news, for the news broadcast, do I see the same news broadcast here in America as the broadcast that's shown in the UK or in Singapore? No, uh, because we have a, obviously a domestic program. Uh, we have, uh, we have uh, three big news bulletins a day, one at one, one at six, one at ten. Uh, and those are obviously... Uh, you know, more focused on UK news. Uh, what you will see uh, in the United States uh, and in Singapore and around the world is a BBC World News Bulletin, which will be far more globally focused. Same reporters quite often um, because the BBC has a network of global correspondents, um, but a, a completely different menu of, of, of items in there. So, so... How do you know when you do a story, a tech story, how do you know who, do you know who you're doing it for? Like, do they say, hey, this is for the domestic program, this is for world news, and, and do you, or, or do you just file the story and then someone decides where it's going to be distributed? Well, my life's got much more complicated over the years. I've been in the BBC a very long time. I used to be just a TV reporter. I was originally a, mainly a business reporter. And I was just working for domestic news bulletins. And I would know exactly who I was working for. You know, I would, would be working to an editor on a news uh, bulletin who had very firm views about what the, the script should be and what the angle should be and so on. Uh, and, and, and that was pretty clear. Nowadays, there are far more people for me to serve. But I will still know who I'm doing a piece for. For instance, I might be doing a piece for our radio news bulletin, our home news bulletin in the evening. Uh, I might be doing something for our breakfast TV uh, program. Uh, breakfast television is nothing like as important in the UK as it is in America, but it's, it's still pretty important. Um, and I, I would know what the audience was there. And I might be doing a live broadcast for uh, our rolling news channel, or our one o'clock news bulletin, or our world TV bulletins. And I would know that the, the audiences were slightly different. But when it comes to technology stories, I think the, the tone, the content, is going to be similar wherever it's shown. Um, if I'm doing a story about um, uh, Apple bringing out a, a, a new iPhone, or... Amazon being uh, under pressure over working practices or uh, Uber, again, losing a court battle, uh, that, will, that will be told in much the same way wherever we are in the world. Because the, the sad truth from a British point of view is that most of the companies we're talking about are big American companies based in one small part of the world um, and everybody knows about them. So you don't really have to explain who Apple is to somebody in Britain, different from somebody in Africa or California. But you've been doing quite a bit of coverage around contact tracing apps in the UK. I imagine that coverage has been local to the UK, yes or no? Yeah, it has, but... Uh, I, I also, the, the other thing I do, which I've done for the last six years, is a weekly radio program on the BBC World Service, which is something we haven't spoke, spoken about, which is a global radio station, which has been around a very long time, um, which isn't commercial. It is funded by, directly now, by the government. Um, and uh, we, uh, we've covered contact tracing in that from... Uh, all sorts of angles, because it's been a global story, the contact tracing story. And yes, I have done uh, con uh, coverage in the UK, aimed at the UK audience, because I've been talking about the UK app, or the England and Wales app, as it is, because they've been separate ones. But 
I've also talked about the uh, the general trend to try and fight this coronavirus with this technology, which has been a fascinating technology story because it's it's completely untested, and we're still not sure whether any of these apps really work. I, I do want to get into the contact tracing, but just to follow up, you mentioned that it's a global radio show that you do. Yeah. What sort of backbone distributes global radio? Because how do how do you get terrestrial broadcast signals global? Well, the BBC World Service has been around for a very long time. I'm trying to remember if it's dates before the Second World War or just after, but um, it is broadcast in the way that radio stations traditionally, I mean, it has been broadcast in that traditional, you know, stick an aerial up and um, provide it that way. The, the same way as Voice of America, I suppose, has been broadcast. It has now gone, you know, they're distributing far more by via uh, the internet uh, and there's a whole sort of podcasting operation. But it is it is something that is very familiar in in a lot of countries, particularly in places. There's a huge audience, for instance, in Nigeria. Um, countries that possibly have you know got old links with the UK, uh, there are strong audiences. But all, all right from during the Cold War, for instance, you know we were doing our best to broadcast behind the Iron Curtain, and and the signal was jammed. Um, these days, you know, we're, we're trying to broadcast to China with our TV station, TV channel has just been thoroughly comprehensively banned by China. Um, so it is, it is, it is, a, it is a global operation which, with, uh, a pretty decent audience. Now, now, Rory, in the pandemic, you've, I imagine, been filing your stories from home. Yes. From right here. So, so yeah. talk to us about how you go live. Talk to us about the apparatus behind if you're going live and is there live or is it always record pre-recorded and talk to us about how you do that. Well, it's been fascinating. I retreated into my attic um, last March, a year ago, really towards the middle of March and I've been into the office once since then on one occasion to do something in front of a green screen, which I couldn't do at home. Um, and I do a whole no number of things. So the radio program I do every week, we used to do live from a studio. So we don't do that anymore. And we probably won't do that even when we go back to the office because the, the, the timings have changed and that radio program now starts going out in the middle of the night. So we, we ain't going to be in a studio in the middle of the night. So what I do is arrange a lot of interviews in the exact way we're doing here, get people to record themselves locally. Um, I record, I've got a quality mic here. I record into an iPad uh, and then beam it across here and send the recordings to my producer who's uh, across the other side of London and he stitches the whole show together. We do a kind of an as live recording on a Thursday lunchtime uh, of all the links. Uh, and then the producer stitches it all together. So that 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 is all pre-recorded. Uh, I have got the means to go live again from here using uh, a kind of a, a rather new system, a voice over IP system that I've been supplied with a touchscreen device again with this microphone. So that's radio. Um, interestingly, I, I've been using for many years an ISDN line to broadcast live from here, uh, which is um, amazingly old technology, but was rock steady compared with internet broadcasting for many years. And this, this new device I've got is the first time I felt confident to use that rather than my ISDN line. So that's It'll radio. Be interesting to see, you know, as we reach herd immunity, um, you know, what type of uh, things endure and what wh which things we revert back to. I had read that um, after restaurants reopened uh, prior to the, or following the, the Spanish flu pandemic, they never replaced the spittoons. <laughs> That's interesting. So, I mean, what lasting changes will we see after everyone 
who wants to be vaccinated is vaccinated. I think it's it's too early to. Can I just quickly say the other thing I do live is is TV live, live shots, and I do it via this an an older iPhone that I've got, uh, where they Skype me, and I've got a, a microphone and earpiece I plug in, and I go live from here, and the shot looks amazingly good. I have to and say that's that's via iPhone. Is it iPhone eleven? Uh, it is iPhone 11, yeah, yeah. And and do you have the three cameras on the back or just the two? I, I've got the three cameras on the back, but I'm using the front camera to... So you can see yourself. Yeah, so I can Interesting. see... Interesting. Yeah, yeah, because I've got no one to point it at me. And so that would they would take that image and broadcast it live. Yeah. And yeah, it looks yeah. good. looks good it on looks a big good. screen. Yeah, I mean, we're all, we're all learning how to do this. Um, uh, I've got a very good internet connection here, kind of cable, 200 meg internet connection, so that that helps. Um, it's always kind of scary. I mean, when you think of what we've grown used to doing, you know, being out in the field and having a huge satellite dish turn up and a team of engineers, this is years ago, and that's sort of boiled down and boiled down until, you know, you would at least be with, you know, a couple, a cameraman and a with a, a probably a, a bunch of SIM cards in a machine called a Live View, um, and now this completely on one's own is kind of scary, but it sort of works. Now, will is this a permanent change? Um, I we we are accepting lower quality TV during this pandemic. You see endless terrible shots. I mean, I'm not going to boast about this shot. This I've not lit this very. Well, but um, we see politicians being interviewed against the light, uh, or, uh, the, or 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 holding holding the uh, the laptop like that, or, or whatever. Um, so I think there will be, you know, uh, an urge to get back to the better professional standards you get from professional TV, but there will there will be a permanent change to, you know, pushing the envelope in terms of what people can do from home. And every organization is going to think, you know, what do we lose by not having people in the office and what do we gain? And we do lose some things and we do gain some things. Do you think um, there becomes less demand for uh, commercial office space? Well, that certainly would seem likely, wouldn't it? Um, when you think uh, the BBC's got a fantastic building that dates back to only about 2012. Well, it's on the site of its original broadcasting house uh, and the old bit is still there, but the new bit where the news operation is wraps around it. Um, that is That has for the last year been uh, about one eighth occupied. Obviously, there are people that have to be there, but uh, seven eighths of the the people that fill it have worked from home. We've managed it pretty well. Would we, in future, you know, build such a building to house quite so many people? There've got to be questions about that. And there are a lot of other organisations with much less need to have people on site. Um, you think of, you know, there's, I think there's been discussions at the likes of Google about whether, you know, you need to employ people in, in Silicon Valley, where, whether, you know, they will be cheaper to employ um, in Texas, in the Midwest or whatever, dialing in each day. So there will be a, a big challenge to the real estate industry. Let's talk for a minute about contact tracing because I know it's something that you've done a fair amount of reporting about. Uh, you were, t I know there was a test of a contact tracing application or uh, mobile app rather in, on the Isle of Wight last year, and then in London, and uh, and there was some experimentation with both centralized and decentralized databases. The the idea being that if the if the data was decentralized and peer-to-peer -peer, that that would somehow not concern people, uh, uh, privacy you know, advocates about 
you know, big brother worries about big brother not having too much information about them. Um, sort of what happened with contact tracing in the U.S.? What happened with privacy concerns? And what happened with uh, centralized versus decentralized data? Well, I got involved in this story almost a year ago when somebody very senior from the tech industry in the UK who'd been called in by government called me and said, would I like to be involved? They seemed to think I was going to be an advisor. I said, I'd love to be involved as a journalist. I'd love to have people tell me stuff that's going on, which did, did then happen. And the ambitions back then were quite extraordinary. People had learned from Singapore. Singapore, it was that pioneered this, something called Trace Together, which was going to use Bluetooth to record proximity events between people. Uh, I've got an app, you've got an app. We happen to brush past each other or stand next to each other uh, in the supermarket or on the, the, the bus or whatever for 10 minutes, and it records that that contact has happened, that this phone has been linked to that phone. And then if one of those people um, then reports that they've been infected with a virus, anonymous messages can be sent to all those people who've had significant contacts with them. So that was that was the concept. And it has actually come to pass after a lot of aggravation in the UK. Um, I've got the app on my phone. It's scanning right now. Um, it has, a, just after Christmas, it did tell me to go into isolation for a week. Um, so it does work. The debate was about the extent to which privacy should be built in. And the people behind the UK app, or the England and Wales app, because there were separate ones in Scotland and Northern Ireland, uh, insisted that theirs was going to be private, but it was going to be what, what privacy campaigners didn't like was that it was going to collect some data, anonymized data, uh, in a central way. Um, and meantime, Apple and Google came up with an API for contact tracing, which was decentralized. And there was a huge debate about which path to go down. And the British government kept going down the centralized path with the first version of the app, which was tried out on the Isle of Wight. Um, and, and the problem with that was whatever you think about privacy, without Apple's cooperation in particular, making these Bluetooth apps work is really difficult. Uh, you don't want them to drain the battery. Uh, you want them to record as accurately as you can. You want them to detect other phones as well as they can. And what they found was that without the cooperation of Apple, and Apple was not going to cooperate with a centralized app, they couldn't make it work. So they switched tack. And like a lot of countries around the world, went down the Apple and Google path. Now that also, to my mind, has some kind of worrying implications because what you're saying is we're going to allow Apple and Google actually to, de to determine our health policy. We can only do this with their permission. Um, and who elected them? So there were, there were arguments on both sides, but eventually an app that did work was released. There's been a lot of debate about how effective it's been. They've finally released some data showing how many people had been alerted, and it was quite a substantial number. But because of the anonymous nature of it, you don't know who's been alerted, and you don't know whether they've obeyed the message. Um, you know, lots of people might get a message on here saying, stay home for a week, and they're going to go, nah. That's always been the problem from my point of view. This is a wonderful technological dream. There's a lot of utopianism about this. The smartphone can be our path out of this pandemic. But it depended on uh, A, technology which is untested, using Bluetooth as a measure of proximity, and B, assumptions about human behavior. Because the alternative, obviously, is manual contact tracing, where you get sick, people call you up and say, who have you seen? And then those contact tracers phone up individuals and say, hey, you better isolate. And believing that a, an alert on a phone is as powerful as a phone call is quite brave. Up to now, most of the leading technology companies have been American. So, I mean, I think it's safe to say that the U.S. is a technology leader. Yet, 
we've been resistant to using technology to stop the spread of the coronavirus. And we've actually had more deaths than any other developed nation. Why do you think that is? Well, just to put it in context, um, we've had 120,000 deaths in this country now, which is, I think, in terms of the population, this is a country of 67 million people. You've had half a million deaths out of, is it 300 million, the population of the US? So I think in, 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 in death rates, we're, we're competing, we're pretty close and we, we may well be ahead. So maybe you shouldn't beat yourselves up quite so much. I mean, obviously this happened, this pandemic, at a time uh, of unique divisiveness in the United States. You'll be a better judge than me whether that it was the case or not. But you've not been able to have uh, a constant policy uh, across the United States in terms of uh, masks, and I presume certainly not in terms of using technology. So uh, I know that there have been a number of states that have adopted these contact tracing apps. There's very little evidence, I think, so far that they've been particularly effective. But then there's very little evidence around the world that they have been the silver bullet. And this all comes back to a debate about um, liberty, privacy, and, and surveillance. The countries that have done really well have been pretty ruthless about their citizens' behavior. Right at the early stages of this, I interviewed on my radio show a young journalist from Taiwan who'd been traveling in Europe and had come back as the pandemic was gripping, gripping the country. He had been stopped at the airport, sent into quarantine. They'd taken details of his phone and one day he was sitting at home and his battery went flat on his phone. And 45 minutes later, the police were knocking on his door to check that he hadn't left home because they were monitoring his phone. And once his phone disappeared from the map, they thought he might be on the move. So that level of surveillance, uh, we wouldn't accept. Another example, South Korea, which has done pretty well in controlling things, had a whole system of using CCTV, uh, credit card transactions, um, and all sorts of other data sources to basically track people and make sure that any case could be contact traced pretty efficiently. So that was a partly technological method, but it was it depended on consumer acceptance, public acceptance of methods that certainly in the United States and probably in Britain too, would be unacceptable to most people. Hey, you mentioned closed circuit television. In the US, many of the closed circuit television systems that are in place use an operating system that's free called Hikvision. And Hikvision is a Chinese company. Yeah. And so you look at that and you have to wonder whether or not they have access to all those cameras. Yeah. Yeah. Well, of course, that that brings us on to a whole new area of debate about what we feel about Chinese technology. And certainly in this country, um, partly under pressure from uh, your administration, we've we've turned we've turned cold on one of our biggest suppliers of technology, Huawei. Um, and Hikvision has been mentioned, too. Uh, because I think there was some suggestion that they controlled the CCTV system around our parliament in Westminster. Interesting. Let's talk just for a minute about sort of how you decide what to cover. How do you use technology to cover the news yourself? What monitoring services or are you, are you using? Do you look at social media? What's trending? How do you sort of keep your finger on the pulse of what's happening in tech? I'm beginning to feel that I'm, I'm slower than some of my colleagues in doing this. I, I work very closely with our online team. Uh, and every morning we have, we have two Zooms, one at 8.30 and one at 9.30, uh, which my colleague, who's our sort of desk editor, goes through, has already scrubbed 
every kind of source. Uh, so yeah, we, we uh, keep a very close eye on social media. Uh, we use uh, a whole bunch of tools to, to monitor stories. Um, I, I, I was a pretty early adopter of, of Twitter. And in the early days, it was great for one's reputation internally because you saw stuff there uh, long before any of your colleagues. I remember one, one occasion back in something like 2007, 2008, I called into our news desk and said there'd been an earthquake, quite a serious earthquake in some Latin American country. And they said, no, there hasn't. We'd have heard by now. Uh, and I had seen it on Twitter, which nobody knew anything about at that stage. So uh, Twitter became uh, kind of bound into my journalism for quite some years. Well, it still is. I still, you know, if I'm looking for case studies or trying to get to people, uh, Twitter's often my first port of call. Um, but now that's something that everybody does. So it doesn't really give you much of an edge. Um, and the other, the, the slightly worrying thing is I, I've been around an awful long time. We, there used to be a great confidence 30, 40 years ago in what was a story. Your editor would tell you, that's not a story. My auntie Jenny in Heckmanwike is not interested in that. Or that's a story that'll, that'll, that'll have them talking in the pubs. So these were old journalists who thought they knew what the news was. And now you've got, well, you may say that that's not interesting to your aunt Jenny, but look at what's on the most read list or look what people are clicking on. You know, there's an instant kind of feedback from the audience. Um, you change a headline on a, an online story, you can immediately see, yeah, there are more people in that story than there were before. And that has kind of, in some ways, sapped the confidence of some editors and perhaps made some of them a bit too eager to chase, for instance, a certain demographic. We're all concerned here, as I'm sure you are, about whether we're serving, um, you know, under 35-year-old audiences, difficult-to-reach audiences, uh, whether we're, we're seeing everybody. People who are struggling to compete online come to me for help, and they're usually confused about why they can't generate new business online. Most of them have a website and are doing content marketing and social media, but it's not working. When they come to me, they think they need a better website or more followers. They mention companies like Shopify, Grubhub, and Peloton, who are killing it online, and they wonder what those guys do differently. If you want to know why some digital companies outperform, get my book, The Digital Pivot, and find out what it takes to build a modern revenue engine. You can listen to the first chapter for free at digitalpivotbook.com. The Digital Pivot explains how to stack business value with digital technology. By focusing on fundamentals first, the book maps out a framework for competing online by taking a sequential approach to owned, shared, and earned media outreach. And it also unlocks positioning opportunities for PR and marketing professionals who want to help their clients win online. The Digital Pivot is available as a hardcover, ebook, and audiobook. And you can download the first chapter for free at digitalpivotbook.com. Rory, what news media outlets do you consume? And who are your favorite writers? Oh, wow. Um, I consume an awful lot. I consume, uh, we, we get two newspapers delivered to my house. My, my wife is an economist, so uh, I, you know, she consumes a vast amount of information about economics. Uh, we get the, the, the Financial Times is probably my favorite um, publication. Uh, and they've got all sorts of great writers there. One of my young colleagues who I kind of was a mentor to is now one of the FTs, people in Silicon Valley, he specializes in Amazon called Dave Lee. I will always look out for his stories. Uh, I look out for Kara Swisher uh, from the New York Times. Um, but generally I will just be, um, consuming 
as much as I can, whatever comes my way, you know, long reads in Wired, uh, the MIT Technology Review. Um, the, the real challenge is information overload, being able to actually sit back and uh, properly absorb something rather than just skimming in a desperate hop from one link to another. Now, you mentioned that your your desk editor sort of goes through the pitches and what's going on and whittles them down for your 8.30 meeting. Are you receiving pitches from PR people directly? Unbelievable numbers of pitches. Um, yeah, all the time. And the, 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 the worst ones are the ones which say, did you read my previous pitch? Um, Every now and then I feel guilty because I don't reply to the most of the pitches I get. But then when I try and clear my inbox at the end of the week, I realize that if I replied, I would literally do nothing else. The sheer volume of, of PR material and a lot of it really, really badly targeted is becoming almost impossible to cope with. I mean, just as an example, I get a lot of places emailing me saying we'd like to place an article an authored piece with you. The BBC just doesn't do authored pieces. You're wasting your time. So it's kind of PR is spam, a lot of it. Um, so what you, you tend to develop relationships with two or three really good PR people who you will trust, who will only approach you with something that, you know, you know might make, might make the effort of turning into television or uh, an online piece. And who are those PR people? Well, I'm not going to name them, but I mean, I, generally I find that uh, I, I always prefer to deal with in-house people. There are, there's a huge range of agencies from very good ones to unfortunately the, the spam merchants. But there are, there are two or three people who, if they come to me, I will seriously listen to. I mean, there, there are obviously some where one is a supplicant. If you're calling Apple, you know what the answer is going to be. They will do nothing for you, but you will still call them. Um, so if they ever came to offer you something, you, you would sit up and listen, but they never do. Um, somebody at another company, I won't name, but is, is a great PR guy who came to me 10, more than 10 years ago and said the BBC main news bulletin should do a piece about cloud computing, this thing called cloud computing, which has never been explained to the public. And we ended up flying to the West Coast and filming in a giant data center uh, and doing a whole bunch of interviews about this thing called cloud computing and explaining it to the world. Um, and about five years after that, he said, you know what you should be explaining to people? Quantum computing. And I, my head fell into my hands because trying to explain quantum computing in two and a half minutes, which is what you might get for a TV news bulletin is a nightmare. And we did do it. Um, and it was then featured this piece. Uh, there's a program called Gogglebox, which is kind of funny program where viewers are watching television and are commenting on it. Uh, and they express themselves in very colorful language uh, basically saying WTF uh, when when I tried to explain quantum computing to them. And the, when, when I told the PR guy who'd assembled, who'd flown in people from the West Coast to take part in this piece, uh, that this, this piece had featured on Gogglebox, he groaned and then said, how am I going to explain that to the West Coast? Uh, and, and he called you or he emailed you? Um, he'll do both. He, he, he will usually call me, this guy. Uh, and he won't call often. He'll only call, you know, a couple of times a year. Uh, and sometimes I know he's been, he's been told by his superiors that he's got to call me and sell me something. And I, I will know that his heart isn't in it because he thinks, he rightly thinks it's not going to fly for me. Is he agency or client side? He's client side now. He used to be agency, but he's client side. Outside of big tech and celebrities, what makes a tech story newsworthy? Golly, that that is like the uh, the original question. That is like, what is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of news? Um, 
something that's significant uh, and something that will also reach out to a wider section of the audience than complete specialists. I mean, there are different, different stories for different audiences. Uh, and one can say that is a story that we'll work on the online on our tech index where people come who've, you know, got a pretty good grounding in technology, uh, but that will not make for the nightly news. And then that is a story that will mean something for the nightly news. And it, it's, it's often a gamble, isn't it? You know, first, the biggest gamble is can you convince the editor of the nightly news to spend some money and put that story out, um, which I did with the quantum computing, but with other things, not. The, the, I, I want to tell you a quick story about the launch of the iPhone, which I, I covered. So I, I got sent to CES, which is the big annual gadget fest, for the first time back in 2007. The BBC decided to do it big. Um, and I said, we need to break away from CES because there's this, this other show happening in San Francisco, Macworld, and the rumor is there's going to be something big. And we flew over for one day, having already spent a lot of money going to Las Vegas, we flew to San Francisco and saw Steve Jobs unveil the iPhone. Um, and as I was walking back to, running back to the hotel to try and feed the pictures, got a call from London say, for the first time from a desk editor saying, we're really excited about this. You've got to get your hands on the phone. And I said, that's impossible. But then I remembered I was, had been offered an interview which I hadn't taken up with Phil Schiller, Steve Jobs marketing guy, rushed back, borrowed his phone very briefly, did a quick interview and, did a thing with the phone. But then the next weekend I was on a BBC complaints program where viewers had written in saying that wasn't a story. That was just a product plug, a promotional plug for a new product. And I stuck my neck out and said, well, I think that was a story. I think that history will show that was an important moment. And think back if the BBC had been around when the Model T Ford had come out, would that, and we covered that, would that have just been a plug or would that have been a story worth telling? Um, and people were skeptical, but I think, you know, that was January, I think it was the 7th, 2007. That was a moment in history. When you think of what the smartphone revolution, which effectively began that day, what that has wrought, that was an incredibly important moment. I want to talk to you about a phishing scam, but just to wrap up this discussion on media relations, give me a sense, like how many PR pitches are we talking a day that you're getting? Well, I, I, I counted, I, I'm, well, I'm getting about 300 emails a day. Um, that doesn't mean they're all PR pitches. A lot of them are kind of newsletters, which I should never have signed up to, but I'm probably getting a dozen, uh, Dear Rory, we think you should cover this story. Uh, a and day. of those dozen, how many are just completely, uh, you know, never going to happen? And how many are actually, you know, legitimate pitches of something newsworthy? I'd say one or two out of a dozen. Um, and do you read them all? I've actually replied to one. Just I just had an, an email, a message on Twitter, a DM. Sometimes they come from DMs on Twitter these days, right. which is which is quite a good way of getting to me, although that is beginning to get a bit spammy too. This woman said, we're working in Nigeria. We're using virtual reality to combat corruption, uh, putting public officials through some virtual reality experience where they're offered a bribe. And I said, that sounds like a possible. We might, we might be interested in that. Um, so... But that is that is quite unusual. And the trouble is, as one gets older and tireder and 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 more cynical, well, there's a real danger that you you miss the really good thing. I mean, the, 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 of course, the best stories are the ones that companies don't want you to to know. I mean, one of the best stories I ever had came from an email from a guy at a company who said this company's technology doesn't work and it's all a, a lie, and it turned into a really good story about a little company called, which claimed 
to be using artificial intelligence to translate people's voicemails into text, but was in fact using hundreds of call centers around the world to listen in and type them up, which was obviously unsustainable and also very insecure. Um, I know you uh, do quite a bit about cybersecurity. So I want to tell you an interesting story. And I want to tell my listeners this story too. So, you know, my wife um, got approached by a recruiter on LinkedIn from a big company called InvestCorp. InvestCorp is a global uh, investment company that owns real estate and businesses all over the world. Uh, They're a legitimate company. Uh, with significant, uh, you know, billions of dollars under management. And they said to her, hey, we know we liked your background and we have a remote um, uh, accounts payable job and we wonder if you might be interested in it. And she checked them out. They looked legit. She showed them to me. They looked legit. Um, So she responded saying, yeah, I would consider it. And then she got another uh, message on LinkedIn from the recruiter saying, you know, we use this um, product called Vervo, which is a skills testing application. Uh, Vervo is V-E-R-V-O-E and they're based in Australia. And, you know, would you take a skills test so we can, you know, verify that you have the skill to do the job? So she says, okay. And she goes on to Vervo, which is also a legitimate company with real clients. And um, she signs up there and she takes an AP accounting test. It's a 90 minute test. And, uh, you know, she gets a score. And the next day she gets an offer letter where it says, you know, we would offer you 20 hours a week and a bonus thing. And it looks very legitimate. And she says, you know, and, and it says we use a system called Flock. Uh, which is like a competitor to Slack. And, um, you know, sign up on Flock and we can, you know, meet there. So she goes on Flock and there's a bunch of people on Flock, like eight or nine people who are also, you know, onboarding. And she's able to chat with those people about where they're from. One person says she's from New Hampshire. She's just starting up. And they're all sort of talking about, you know, getting started and uh, they get instructions for onboarding. And then she gets, um, you know, a, a different forms to fill out uh, so that she can receive her, her payment. And one of them is uh, uh, an IRS form that's been pre-filled out with all the InvestCorp information. So it looks completely legit. And she, she shows it to me. She says, can I do this? I say, looks totally legitimate to me. So she signs up for it. And they say, okay, we'll get you started in 48 hours. So, you know, (laughs) 24, 36 hours later, she looks at me, she says, I think I've been scammed. I say, why do you think that? She said, I don't know. I just have a feeling. I said, no way. You're freaking out. It's nothing. It's completely fine. She calls the head of HR for InvestCorp and leaves a frantic message and another one for the head of legal affairs at InvestCorp and leaves a message. And she tells me, I'm like, oh, why did you do that? That was ridiculous. You never should have done that. Everything's fine. You're going to be starting soon. Sure enough, she gets a call back from the head attorney from InvestCorp and the head of HR at InvestCorp saying, no, 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 we're not hiring for any of those positions. This is a scam. Next, they put a notice up on their homepage saying, click here for more information about the scam. I do a search on Google and I find that Atlantic Media has been scammed as well. And they're running on their homepage a whole account of this, you know, elaborate scheme. I mean, can you imagine? And and the funny thing is, pardon me? What were they trying to get? Did they get her bank details? They never got her bank details. They got her social security number. They got her uh, driver's license information. And at that point, she realized, oh, my God, there's something wrong here. And then we, she shut it down, froze her credit, you know, killed, you know, alerted the authorities about the driver's license, got a new driver's license. So, you know, not, no, no harm, no foul other than, you know, a, a yeah. couple of hundred hours of her life That's wasted having to deal with it. Yeah. But the interesting thing is this, okay, 
it's a 20 hour gig for a part-time accounts payable person. What is the, I mean, the, the amount of work that had to go into getting her information is so elaborate. There was so much time and energy, even stooges in flock for her to be able to chat with, to be able to verify that in fact, this is legit. I mean, it's gotta be the Russians. Who the hell else could pull this off? And we're sure that the stooges in flock weren't other victims, but they were, they were stooges. Well, I mean, we're not. I mean, my son thinks that they were AI. I can't, I think it'd be cheaper <laughs> to just get stooges, wouldn't it? And maybe one or two were other people. Who knows? I, we don't know. Wow. Uh, Terry Kelman, who's on the line with us, says he thinks it's Nigeria and China. But let me tell you something. I don't think looking, I looked at the communications carefully. I looked at how this thing was structured. I mean, these were, these people were, had resources. They spent a lot of time in it and it was very well done. I mean, I, I produced a couple of online courses about cybersecurity and I couldn't see through it. I was duped by it. Unbelievably sophisticated. It, it is. And it kind of all the more ironic. I keep getting the worst phishing gang ever contacting me saying BBC HR department. And they, 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 they put the BBC logo wrong. Capital B, small B, small C, HR department. You have been offered a bonus for your good work. Click on this Google document. Um, and this makes all my colleagues laugh hysterically because the BBC ain't been paying any bonuses for a long, long time. So <laughs> it's... Well, we're a long way from the Nigerian prince who needs you to lend him $100 yeah. so he can reclaim yeah. his rightful throne. I mean, this is like, this was like, and it seems like as we come out of the pandemic, people wanting work, it seems like this employment channel could be a really fruitful way to go. Because obviously, if you believe you're getting a job, you have to provide your contact information. This you sounds no like choice. You, you'd think this would work if it was spear phishing. You know, they were they were going for, which we know they do, the, these these kind of clever scams where people end up thinking they're being told by their chief executive to make some money transfer. Um, a company which defends against that showed me how easy I would be to fool one one day by uh, sending me an email from my producer with a, a link in it to click. And of course they just spoofed his, his email. Um, but that, that does sound a really sophisticated scam, but one's got to ask what, what was the, what was the return on capital invested? Well, in this case we got lucky, you know, she yeah. somehow had a premonition and, you know, turned it all off before, but it was, I mean, I'm a professional in this community and if it was up to me, we'd have been duped. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, now Rory, um, the latest trust barometer report from Edelman says we're living through a pandemic and an infodemic at the same time. Trust in news media and elected officials is at an all time low and people don't know where to turn for accurate news and information anymore. What needs to happen to fix the situation? Well, that, that is a very big question. First of all, it's important not to exaggerate that lack of trust. Well, certainly in the UK, I know far more about the, the trust levels here. Trust in the BBC has gone down a little, but our coverage, uh, according to surveys just like that, is still trusted way more than uh, newspapers, uh, certainly way more than tabloid newspapers, and a hell of a lot more than Facebook, uh, the news accessed on Facebook. So uh, I think we've got to be we've got to be brave about um, uh, believing in our journalism uh, and and showing. The, the way our journalism works and combating this wave of disinformation. I think, you know, uh, I've, I've just read a book by uh, the founder of an organization called Bellingcat, which is uh, uh, 
an open source journalism organization which has done amazing things in tracking down, for instance, the poisoners of uh, Navalny, the Russian opposition leader, and uh, the Russian agents who came to Salisbury in England a couple of years ago uh, and tried to commit murder here and accidentally, by, by chance, killed a British citizen. Uh, and this organization, Bellingcat, uses publicly available data to wage this information war. Uh, they, they, they've shown, for instance, convincingly that uh, the Syrians did use chemical weapons in their war there, uh, but they are in a, in a huge battle with what Elliot Higgins in this book calls uh, the, um, the counterfactual community, those people who are determined to spread lies uh, and deceit. And I think it's, it's important that we all as journalists stand up for the truth and call out lies when we see them and don't, don't be frightened of uh, sticking by our journalism and uh, not just saying, well, some people say this, some people say that, but uh, trusting the truth. According to All Sides Media, which does a multi-partisan scientific analysis of media bias, the, BB is, the BBC is considered to be among the unbiased news media outlets, along with news from NPR, the Associated Press, and Reuters. What systems are in place to maintain the Beeb's neutral point of view? Well, it is built into our DNA. And in fact, our new director general, Tim Davey, has come in and made this a big feature that impartiality uh, is at the core of what we do. Uh, and as I say, it's, it's kind of, it's called due impartiality. We are, we, are, we are not told that, for instance, we must be impartial about climate change. There was a big row a few years ago about a BBC programme which gave equal prominence to a climate scientist and a climate change denier. We no longer do that. We say the, set, the science on, on climate change is pretty settled. Um, and we will, you know, we will be biased towards the belief that climate change is real, for instance. But we, we are very, very focused as BBC journalists on striving to be impartial. It is, is built into, a, into our DNA, as I said. In fact, we're, we're about to go on a whole series of courses highlighting this, you know, trying to, to bolster uh, our impartiality. It doesn't mean that we're not uh, a battleground from both sides. We, uh, during the, the whole thorny issue of Brexit, we were accused by the people favouring Brexit of being massively biased against them and by the people opposing Brexit of being massively biased against them. Uh, uh, and in these very, you know, divided times, it gets more difficult because uh, people say they want unbiased news, but actually quite often what they want is news that reflects their point of view and not others. Tell us about this book you have coming out. Yeah, I'm writing a book called Always On, uh, Hope and Fear in the Social Smartphone Era. And it's basically an account of, I talked earlier about the, uh, the birth of the iPhone. It's, it's an account of the years since 2007 and the way I've experienced them. And that arc that we had, uh, I mean, this has been a, an era where technology has for the first time become really personal. I grew up at the times of, of the moon landings, uh, nuclear power. Technology was big, exciting, but inaccessible. You never thought you would go to the moon or own a computer. And now we're all walking around with incredibly powerful computers in our pockets. And I try in the first half of the book to capture the, the extraordinary changes and the excitement of that era and the way these phones coupled with the development of social media really transformed every aspect of our lives. And then I, things take a, a downward turn as I consider um, the downsides, the, the obsessiveness uh, of, of these devices, uh, what we've seen in terms of the damaging effects on our democracy uh, of uh, social media and in particular of Facebook, um, and try and sort of, way up 
where we've got to on that. And the final section of the book is written during the pandemic where all the pluses and minuses come to the fore. I thought at the beginning, a year ago, I wrote a piece about what would have happened if this pandemic had happened in 2005, just before the smartphone era, and how much more difficult it would have been for us to cope. Um, uh, and that, that's, the, that's been the good side, the fact that we are doing this here, uh, which would not have been possible in 2005. Uh, and the bad side has been that infodemic that has spread around the world of phony news about COVID, links to 5G, that, that kind of area. Rory Kethlin Jones, tech correspondent from the BBC, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And if you're listening and you'd like to support the podcast, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. For more on how you can earn influence through earned media, get the Digital Pivot audiobook at digitalpivotbook.com.